This is Echozoi Radio, episode 122 for June 2018, with Nate Pickowitz on Solus Christus. Welcome to Echo Zoe Radio, the podcast outreach of Echo Zoe Ministries, where you'll hear about important topics affecting the church today. Our primary goal is to explore a variety of issues while remaining faithful to God and His Word. Stay with us for the next hour as your host, Andy Olson, shares his conversation with this month's guest. Here's your host, Andy Olson. I'm Andy Olson. Thanks for listening to Echo Zoe Radio. This is episode 122 for June 2018 with Nate Pickowitz. Nate returns as a follow-up to both our October episode on the five solas and a continuation of the five solo series that we began in 2010 and has been on hiatus for several years. Nate and I discussed the Reformation doctrine of Solus Christus, which is Latin for Christ alone. As with any episode, you can get show notes for this one at the website. Every month I put together a bullet-pointed outline of the discussion, a list of scriptures that we reference during the show for your own deeper study, and when appropriate, lists of additional resources on the subject, as well as related episodes from the Echozoe Radio archives. You can find show notes for this episode at echozoe.com slash 122. With that, here's my discussion with Nate. Nate, uh, great to have you back. It's been not that long. You were just on with me last fall. We did a show on the five solas, and you're back with me today. Yes, sir. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah. Um, so I was just mentioning that, uh, you know, for the benefit of the listeners, I was just mentioning that but for that show we did in the fall, um, we and if you missed it, we kind of did an overview of the five solas. Uh, Nate did a book called Why We're Protestant. It goes through the five solas. And um, that was our Reformation episode last October. And uh, so, Nate, you're back to do Solas Christus. I did a series number of years ago and didn't get quite through it all. And uh, we're picking it back up. We're going to do Solas Christus. Excellent. Looking forward to it. And... um, we're going to be a little bit short today. I think we both got it's it's uh, it's a weekday, which is a little bit different for when I do shows. But uh, we both got a little bit of time constraint, so be a little on the shorter side. But a uh, great topic, great great show. Um, looking forward to the discussion. Why don't we just jump in? And we've been through some of this. If uh, I'll put a link to the October episode that we did as an overview, but we're going to talk about Solus Christus and I'm just going to use your book, I guess, kind of as a, uh, an outline or a model to, 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 um, if I can't, you know, to direct the conversation today. And, uh, of course you start out with one of my favorite things and that's church history. Uh, and, and our Ulrich Zwingli, what does Ulrich Zwingli have uh, to offer, uh, Solus Christus. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so probably from the outset, I don't know if people would directly connect uh, his name to that concept, uh, but just kind of as a way of introduction, one of the things that I wanted to do 
Um, when I wrote Why We're Protestant, initially it started off as a sermon series. Mm-hmm. Um, as Reformation was kind of picking up, this is actually a year ago, this month, I think. Um, as it was picking up, I, uh, I really was uh, wanting to, to do something to teach um, to teach our church um, about this issue, about the Reformation, and specifically about the solas, and to really try to get them uh, some groundwork for uh, understanding the Reformation, and, and not as much the events of the Reformation, but the battles of the Reformation theologically. Mm-hmm. So uh, one thing I didn't want to do, though, is get up for six sermons and just uh, just exposit doctrine and give them terms and Latin and all that stuff, even though that's important. I really wanted to try to set this um, in the course of history and set this uh, into the lives of, of the believers who were doing the work in the ministry uh, during that time, because I just feel like narrative biography especially has such a powerful way to link doctrine and uh in life you know it's a bridge and um yeah i know i think that's maybe what why i i enjoy the history so much is that it helps to i'm not seminary trained and so i haven't gone through the greek lessons i haven't gone through some of the formal history tests but or lessons and stuff but it helps me to better understand where how we got to where we are in the church today and coming out of uh, a thousand years of catholic rule and uh you know and really getting back into the scriptures and understanding the doctrines better and so that's sure, a, that's a great sure. point on how uh, yeah great method i so, guess to, to to teach it yeah i mean historic i really start i really fallen in love with historical theology and really trying to um unpack things as they're happening and really try to examine you know these these doctrines um through the eyes of the reformers because their eyes were focused on on the scriptures. They were trying to, to derive their doctrine from the scriptures, and so mm-hmm. certainly you don't want to lose sight of of the doctrine. You don't want to uh, you know conflagrate the, the doctrine and history. But if it's if the doctrine's correct, you can use their life as a teaching tool to yeah. deliver that. So the format that I wanted to do is I, I wanted to structure it in such a way where each chapter, each sola um, sort of seized on a particular life and strength of one of the reformers. And so when I talk about the doctrine of scripture, I, I talk about Tyndale because he was a Bible translator. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I talk about, um, you know, faith, I talk about Martin Luther. When I talk about, um, you know, Soli Deo Gloria, I talk about John Calvin. So I was looking for sort of who can I capitalize on to, to talk about Solus Christus, which is in Christ alone. And I was reading, actually, there's a great book out there. If, if um, There's so many books in the Reformation, but one book that was really, really helpful was a book called uh, Theology of the Reformation by Timothy George. And it's a, it's a scholarly book, but he does a really, really good job. It's a one-volume book. Um, he does a good job of really bringing uh, bringing out and teasing out what the Reformers actually believed and where they got their theology from. And mm-hmm. one thing that he said in his book that sort of caught my eye was uh, he was talking about uh, Zwingli, who was a, a Swiss Reformer, and he was talking about his life and his ministry and the things he was doing. And Zwingli was a really radical guy. Like he was um, probably would make a lot of us pretty nervous <laughs> just in his reforms. But one thing that George uh, said was that this guy, if anybody embodied Solus Christus, it was Zwingli. And uh, that kind of caught my eye. 
And what Zwingli did, he was alive. He was born in uh, 1484. He died in 1531. Um, he was uh, ordained as a, a Catholic priest, a minister, and was uh, went to his church. And um, one of the things he did that was kind of radical is he broke from the normal, um, the normal liturgy, the, the normal um, uh, mode of preaching and mode of teaching. And he says, "I'm just going to teach the Bible." And so the day he shows up there, he opens up Matthew chapter one and just starts to explain to his people what the Bible says. Now, for us, that seems like, well, duh, of course mm-hmm. you do that. But for his day and age, for his time, you didn't do that. You didn't have the license, according to the Roman Catholic Church, to just go and exposit Scripture. How dare you? So the thing he was doing was just teaching the Scriptures, and as he was doing that, the scales are coming off the eyes of his people, and they're looking around the building, and they're saying, wow, all of this stuff, all these the stained glass windows, all the relics, all the service, the candles, the incense, all this stuff is is built on a false system of works-based religion. And so Zwingli, as he's preaching Christ to his people, they're starting to see this is this is wrong. You know, we need to be keeping mm-hmm. our, our eyes on Christ alone. And so they literally began to rip out artwork and pews. They smashed the stained glass windows. I mean, they just destroyed all of the physical elements in their building that had to do with anything other than Christ and, and worshiping him alone. And so uh, when the Roman Catholic um, you know, magistrates are coming through and they're looking at everything, to them it looked like a pigsty. They just emptied the building. It was you know, dank and there was nothing in it, uh, pretty much like a lot of our buildings today, just very simple. But they were just appalled that they threw away all their all their icons and everything like that. But Zwingli, uh, and he started sort of a political revolution uh, in his in his city as well, which ultimately ended in his demise. He took it way too far to the point where he actually marched on the battlefield with an axe and actually died. He was killed on the battlefield. Hmm. Um, one story says that he, uh, as he was dying, one of the um, the soldiers came over to him and was going to give him last rites, and he was shaking his head no. He couldn't even speak. He was so wounded badly. And uh, he was saying no. And then the, the soldier uh, realized that this wasn't a Catholic. He was a Protestant and then took a sword and just stabbed him and killed him. So oh, wow. just very, very graphic, very visceral. Uh, but that was Zwingli. I mean, he was uh, robust and, again, pretty nutty by our standards. But the one thing for him as a pastor that he kept on going back to was just that our salvation comes by grace through faith, but it comes in Christ alone. Uh, really, really important. He built his life and ministry, died believing that. Um, so I just really wanted to sort of capture the elements of his life in the opening part of the chapter to set the, st- the stage for this is something that they believe, this is what the Bible teaches, and it's right. Mm-hmm. So. Well, one thing that, I caught, that caught my attention also is, is um, the influence that the uh, Erasmian Greek translation had on him, and that, that seems to be a common theme with the uh, Reformers, and and that they, they're, they're, several of them went along life as Catholic priests, and then all of a sudden they got their hands on this uh, Greek New Testament and learned how to read it in Greek, and um, it just kind of took off from there. It went uh, they they went more in the direction of of Scripture and further and further away from Catholic dogma, and um, yeah, I just thought that that interesting. I mean, it was a bigger thing. The, the, that Greek New Testament had had a, a bigger influence on the Reformation than I think it gets credit for sometimes. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. That's actually, uh, there's a book called um, Christianity's Dangerous Idea by Alistair McGrath. Um, not everybody uh, appreciates everything he has to say, but the book is actually very good. But he talks about that, that really the Erasmus's Greek New Testament, which came out in 1516, the year before the Reformation sort of officially began, mm-hmm. that really led the kindling wood to the fire. And um, I mean, that was what... Um, uh, Luther was reading. That was what Zwingli was reading. I mean, that really, um, it just set the fire in, in a huge way because for the first time in probably a thousand years, people are reading the Bible in the original languages mm-hmm. and, um, and they're deriving their doctrine, they're deriving their understanding of the scriptures not from the Latin text, but from the Greek text. Yeah. And, uh, and they're correcting some of the errors that had crept in over the years uh, in the Latin text. And even we know now there's even some errors in the Erasmian text that we, uh, we know are, are incorrect just by our own textual scholarship now. But it just had a profound impact. And, um, you know, we'd said before that, um, that the, uh, one of the principles of the Reformation was sola, uh, sola, um, scriptura mm-hmm. and just the the focus on the scriptures. I mean, if you get the scriptures wrong, you get everything wrong. Yeah. Uh, so it, it absolutely had to be there and had to be in place for this to happen. Well, and then there's more to it than that too. That um, that is, like I said, I, I don't formally study history, but kind of putting together two and two and and uh, um, and seeing that that the Erasmian uh, Greek text came in large part was uh because of the muslim invasion of we always it's easy for us to forget about the the eastern church that there's a whole church you know east of europe and and that as the muslims invaded that territory a lot of those people who were still very much grounded in the greek started heading westward for safety and they brought their greek with them and that's Really, what uh, ignited this this Greek kind of um, resurgence in the church, and in a lot of ways, it's it's ironic that this Muslim invasion from the east is what eventually led to, in some ways, the Reformation as we know it in in Western Europe. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, it does. It does. And uh, what's astounding to me is just that God uses. Um, just uh, what we would consider to be, oh, coincidental, you know, mm-hmm. oh, wow, how funny that happened, you know, but it's the providence of God. I yeah. mean, he really, you know, every single movement, um, you know, from creation to, uh, you know, Pentecost to the Reformation to every every piece of historical um, uh, working is God's sovereign plan. And so the way that God rearranged and organized people in certain ways at certain times to have things happen um, I mean, all these little pieces have to fit into a puzzle exactly right, mm-hmm. uh, and thankfully, God is the uh, the author and orchestrator of all that. But um, yeah, I mean, really, it was the, it was the right elements at the right time. God using the right people to bring all this stuff about. I mean, it's really it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. So now back to Solus Christus. Let's get more into that. And you know, I I think you set it up well with Zwingli, but let's get into specifically what it was about a Christ alone that he offered the church then? 
So, Solus Christus, and again, I think just for the sake of context, you know, the, the reformers didn't sit down and, and sort of have, have this little meeting and say, okay, we're going to build on five main points <laughs> here, here, solas, you know, it wasn't like that. I mean, all uh-huh. the solas are really sort of uh, historically read back into um, their writings and into their working. Mm-hmm. Um, but we understand that generally these five solas sort of categorized um, and function as sort of unofficial credos of the Reformation. But um, the one thing that was really... Um, um, tirelessly hammered on uh, was this concept, and, and if you think about Luther's contribution, initially, initially Luther was not advocating um, justification by faith alone. That wasn't the main thing that started his his um, his you know, writing in his ninety five theses. It was the abuses of the Catholic Church. It was it was mm-hmm. um, sort of taking the eyes off of of the true gospel and putting it onto the Pope and to all the Specifically, the, uh, he indulgences was indulgences and, self, self-indulgences. Absolutely. So, you know, he, he is initially sort of writing these tirades um, against um, the sale of indulgences for the forgiveness of sins. Um, and so that really is what springboards him into further study, and then over time he develops his theology further. But but the big idea is that, you know, any any false religious system, and doesn't matter if you're talking about Roman Catholicism, if you're talking about Islam, you're talking about any single system that builds any kind of salvation or meritorious salvation or works, uh, or merit, I should say, um, on works is going to be a false system. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so the scripture over and over again points to the exclusivity of Christ as the sole savior, as the sole redeemer, um, I mean, it's on his shoulders that we are uh, are saved. So this idea that that you have to have something else, and even nowadays, you know, what we oftentimes see is it's not that we we see like oh, you know, people who profess to be Christian, oh, I don't trust in Christ. It's that oh, I trust in Christ, and then they want to add something to him. They want to add something to the work, and that's the problem. So you go to a Roman Catholic Mass, and they'll they'll sit there, and they'll talk about the glory of Christ, but then there's something else that's added in. You have to be a good person and do good things and say these prayers and pay this money and buy this thing, and it's all this other system. And the Reformers rejected that and said, that's not how salvation works. It's not um, your faith in Christ plus a bunch of other things. It's Christ alone. So that that's the core of the gospel. So I want to talk. I, I kind of want to go into a few different angles on on Solus Christus, but I think the one that makes the most sense to start would be the Catholic side. What is uh, what was competing with Christ in the Catholic system that was thrown off through the Reformation? And then I've got some other questions. I think that kind of go in a different direction, but. You know, you talk a little bit about the Eucharist and the Mass and um, in, in the book, and then um, there's some other things that were competing with Christ alone. Right. So essentially the way I like to um, understand and think about uh, the Roman Catholic system of salvation is they really, theologically, they take a team approach. That's really the best way to understand it. It's a team approach. It's Christ— so they love Christ, and they'll talk about Christ, but it's Christ, and then they want to throw in other other people and other things as well. It, mm-hmm. It's almost as if if the sacrifice of Christ is not enough, 
if my sins are too great or if I can't quite get to him, well, maybe I can go to Mary too. So I'm going to pray to Mary because she has his ear and, you know, he'll listen to his mother. So we're going to talk to Mary. And, uh, you know, if we can't quite get to Mary, we're going to talk to these other saints who passed on before us. And uh, we're going to do all these things. And, you know, we're going to ask the Pope and he's going to help us to get closer to these saints. And there's a whole team system. And there's something called the treasury of merit. Uh, There's a concept, a theological concept, that all the good works of Christ, all the good works of the apostles, of Mary, of any saint in church history, uh, certainly the the canonized saints, all the the works that they did that are essentially extra. So the stuff, the, the merit that they earned in life that they didn't actually need in the end, so the extra stuff that they was left over, gets deposited into this sort of spiritual treasury. Um, and the question is, well, who has access to this treasury of merit? And on earth, it's the Pope, it's the Roman Catholic Church. And so they claim that the Pope, you know, by way of the magisterium, holds the keys to the kingdom. And so he can open and shut that and dispense grace to people who are in need of grace. And that was one of Luther's arguments. Luther said, look, if the Pope holds the keys to the kingdom and he can open up the the gates of hell and let people out according to the treasure of merit, then why doesn't he let everybody out? Mm -hmm. And what kind of a heartless guy do we have here that won't let people out of of hell if, if he has the power to do it? So that was kind of his railing against that. Um, but it's this concept that there's there's other works that are being deposited and we have to sort of do, you know, magic formulas, different kinds of things. You got to offer penance here and do this here and say this, you know, Hail Mary here and all this stuff that's that's added to the work of Christ when Christ on the cross himself said it is finished. It's paid in full. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not that they don't acknowledge the sacrifice of Christ. It's that the sacrifice of Christ does not go far enough. And if you even look a little bit further, um, I just wanted to hit this one point having to do with their – I'm actually looking at it right now, trying to find the actual verbiage here, and I might not find it in the time that that we have here. But there's – essentially their catechism um, includes the Eucharist. It includes sort of a re-offering of of the sacrifice as one full sacrifice. It deems it to be the same. so even though Hebrews says that that we have a sacrifice offered for uh, one sacrifice for sins for all time, um, their system would say that, no, there needs to be something added to that, that, that the sacrifice uh, that's offered in the Eucharist is part of that, and it's offered in an unbloody manner, which even though Hebrews 9.22 says that all things are cleansed of blood, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. So the idea that there is an additional unbloody sacrifice in the Eucharist, that that is somehow completing the work, is blasphemy. It's flat mm-hmm. blasphemy. So that's what they're, that's what they're perpetuating. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it just seems so manipulative, the, that whole process, though. You know, we're going to, you know, this, this uh, um, treasury of merit and whatnot, and, 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 and getting people to buy indulgences and um, it's, it's all just a system of manipulation. And, and I could see why, uh, why Zwingli and his church would go and, and totally trash the, the building once they start reading scripture and seeing that it's not scriptural. Um, it, when you, when you see that, I, you, you'd be full of, I mean, I'd be angry if I spent my whole life being taught this is the system. And then I read the scripture and then realize it's not, it's totally different. I, I mean, I would, probably be right there with 
pickaxes, you know, taking out stained glass windows too. Right. I mean, even you read, I mean, the second commandment, you know, against graven images, it's like, as soon as you mm-hmm. read that, you look around, you see all these statues of Mary and saints and Jesus and whatever relics you have. It's like, my goodness, like we're sitting in the midst of paganism. Mm-hmm. And that's what they were realizing is that they, they were sitting in, in a pagan temple, essentially masquerading as a church. Um, so yeah, it was, it was incredibly, uh, jarring for them. And again, you know, it's, it's hard for us, I think, historically, um, to sort of place our minds in that and, you know, what would we do and how would it work? And boy, that seems kind of severe, you know, and, but it's like, we just, we, we don't have, the Roman Catholic church doesn't have the power governmentally that it used to have. Yeah. Um, and that was really, I mean, any, any religious system that's built that way, and that goes even to even the, the Jewish system that Jesus was opposing when he was uh, here on earth. It's the same thing. It creates a power structure that people are now dependent on the system and not on the Savior. So if, if your salvation is tied to the Mass, then that means that you're also tied to church attendance. You're also tied to your giving. You're tied to every single time something happens in your life, you have to go back to the church. Mm-hmm. So if you think about even just the seven sacraments, so every time a baby is born, every time you have to get married, every time you have to do X, you know, every time when someone dies, you got to pay. It's all a money system to get people dependent, spiritually dependent. It's a spiritual welfare system, mm-hmm. spiritually dependent on the church. And that's not Christianity. You know, if because if all of a sudden you understand that the vicar of Christ is the spirit of God and that this kingdom, this 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 assembly is actually a spiritual thing that manifests itself physically. We get together for, you know, church services and hang out and stuff. But but if, if the real bond of unity is a spiritual unity and our head is not the Pope, but actually Christ himself, well, then you can't monetize that. You mm-hmm. can't create a, an earthly power structure. There's no leader. Um, there's no Pope. There's no Christ vicar at that point. There's no way to monopolize that and systematize that in a way that serves sinful desire. So, they create, and it's again, every false religion creates these power structures to drive us into the sinful greediness of man and not toward dependency on Christ. So that's where you're always going to see it. You got to follow the money. I mean, mm-hmm. I hate to be like a conspiracy theorist here, but I mean, that's really, I mean, that's what Jesus, you know, he was in, in Matthew 23. I mean, he was um, attacking them for their greed and for their lovelessness, robbing widows' houses and doing everything for, for filthy lucre. You know, John 10, he says, you know, the false shepherds, hirelings, they don't care anything for the sheep. They just come to, to, to take their money. And as soon as uh, the wolf comes, they they flee. So they mm-hmm. come in, they, they bilk the, the flock for all they can get. And then when trouble comes, they take off. So it's always about the money when it comes to false religion. That's ultimately their end. They want to serve their belly. And um, and that's how people get enslaved in these kinds of systems, is thinking they have to rely on a, a religious organization, an institution, and not put their faith alone in Christ. And so that that's where it got convoluted, but that was where the Reformers were fighting to say, look, this is not about you know, feeding into a, a religious organization. This is about faith in Jesus Christ and how do I get to heaven? Mm-hmm. Um, so it was so it was so deep. It was more than just Sunday morning attendance. I mean, they they ruled your life. Yeah. And you were ter- if someone died, you were terrified that your little tiny baby who may or may not have been baptized is my baby in hell or not. You know, what happens if I don't do X? What happens if this? What happens if that? 
um, it was just spiritual terrorism. Really awful. Yeah, that's just vile. Yeah. So uh, another angle that I wanted to pursue was that um, it, it, it's kind of my, maybe a post-Catholic uh, departure from Solus Christus. You know, how how else do we depart from Solus Christus? And I think you kind of hit on it to some degree with the other false systems and stuff. But um, it, Well, there's always going to be the, the temptation um, – sinfully to add or try to add to the work of Christ. And I think, especially in the Christian circles even today, um, whether you're dealing with um, moralism um, or legalism, mm-hmm. whatever it may be, there's always going to be this inclination to try to do more. Um, and and, and you're in your insecurity and even in your pride, maybe, to think that you're somehow functioning as a co-redeemer for your own soul. Um, you know, there's a even now, there's something we kind of know as uh, moralistic, uh, therapeutic deism. Mm-hmm. This, this idea that all these kids coming out of churches and going away to school, they don't leave with a general understanding of the gospel. They leave um, sort of believing in their, their own ability to, to save themselves. That if they just do good things and be a good person, God will be happy with them. It's it's just a moralistic uh, point system is essentially what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... Again, it, that comes from a misunderstanding or a, a, a misrepresentation of the gospel. So we're always going to be tempted um, to, to think that our merit is going to earn us something, either out of fear that Christ is not enough um, or out of pride that we can somehow you know, offer something to God as if he had, needs something that we have. It's, uh, I mean, it's, everything we would have is tainted. Um, and if you understand the holiness of God and the seriousness and the gravity and the wretchedness of sin, then you start to see that I need the sacrifice of Christ. And not only do I need it, it's the only thing that's going to save me from the penalty of sin is his blood on the cross. That That's it. I have nothing to offer. I was talking to, I, had a, I have a men's theology group I run on Thursday nights, and we were talking last night about this very thing. And one one illustration that came up is, you know, say you have a mass murderer who's killed 10 people, and he's walking across the street. They have him in cuffs, and they're marching him to the courthouse. And as he's walking across the street, an old lady trips and spills her groceries all over the street. Well, the guy in the handcuffs kind of reaches over and helps her pick up a couple of her items and put them back in the bag. Then he marches off to the courtroom. He can't stand before the judge after having killed 10 people. And say, yeah, but I helped the old lady. Did you did you see me? Did you see me? You know, like that deed, yeah. as you know, good as it is on the surface, doesn't erase all the weight of sin behind it, and it certainly mm-hmm. doesn't atone. It doesn't do anything. So we're like the criminal who's who's murdered people. Like that's the vileness of our sin. To think that we can somehow offer deeds to God that are going to warrant some kind of spiritual blessing or favor or salvation. Is just ludicrous, and we well, don't and how understand just, the gravity. Uh, how 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 angry would a just judge be if that guy tried to get his sentence reduced because he helped a a woman exactly. who, who tripped? Exactly. We just you know, and and it comes up all the time. You know, what about people who do good things? What about good people in the world? <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, and the truth is, there are no good people in the world. Mm-hmm. Just because you don't see the the vileness of their sin doesn't mean that it's not there. And uh, it's not to, you know, to to spit on the common grace of God, because people do do nice things for one another, and there is sort of a, a common grace, uh, kindness that people can extend. 
Um, but, but to say that somehow that just being a good person in the world and doing good stuff for people, that that's going to earn you a way into heaven. That's, that's a trying to add to the work of Christ or even mm-hmm. supplant the work of Christ. Yeah. And that's not the gospel. Well, and then part of our sin nature also, I think is that if, if that were even the case, we would then want to leverage that, that, well, if I do these good things over here, then that should free up, uh, you know, these sins over here, you know, I really love this sin over here and I want to keep doing that right. sin. So I'm just going to go help right. old ladies, you know, to make up for it. And, um, right. you know, it's not gonna, it's not gonna benefit us personally or humanity to have a, you know, have a balanced system. It just gets people to, again, it gets another system that people would just manipulate Right. It's not like they cross cancel and, you know, one one good deed outdoes the uh the sin. If anything it compounds it because then you're ignoring and you're you're trying to atone right. for something sinfully. So you're only compounding your sin. It's uh it only gets worse for you, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I mean I think that the main thing when you think about Solus Christus is, you know, what what did Jesus say about it himself? You know, I think that's you know, again, we want to talk about doctrine. We want to talk about justification, but but look at look at what Jesus actually says in the Gospels. Uh, what does he say about himself? In John fourteen six, you know, they're asking if they can. Um, you know, he says, you know, you're going to come. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Where I go, you, I'm going to bring you with me. And they says, well, we don't know the way. How do we get to heaven? What's what's the way? You know, is what what they're asking. Mm-hmm. That's when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. And um, what do you do with that? That's the question. You know, what do you do with Jesus's exclusive claims that he is the only way to the Father? You know, we can take the Oprah Winfrey approach and say, well, there's many ways to heaven. And it's like, but yeah, but that's not what Jesus says. Mm -hmm. So either Jesus is lying about the way to salvation or he's exactly right. And everybody else who calls him a liar is a liar. So Jesus himself claims exclusivity. Um, he claims oneness with the Father. He claims unity with the Father, I should say. It's a better word for it. Um, but there, there is an exclusive way to heaven. I remember I was in a conversation a couple of years ago with someone who was uh, active in the Roman Catholic Church, and they were talking about how their priest was essentially saying that all people go to heaven, just different levels of heaven. And I, and I asked him, I said, what about Adolf Hitler? I said, does he go to heaven? He goes, well, yeah, but he just goes to a different part. I was like, that's terrible. If, if Adolf Hitler is in heaven, I don't want to go there, you know? Mm-hmm. Then I said, well, what about, what about John 14 when Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And it's funny because he didn't refute the claim. He, refuted, he tried to refute the scriptures. He says, well, where does it say that? I said, well, it's in John 14. And he says, well, who, who wrote that? And he tried to attack the veracity of scripture. Didn't want to yeah. deal with the truth claim. Didn't want to deal with what Jesus said. He tried to deal with the scripture and says, well, that's not really what Jesus said. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just like the enemy. Did, did God really say that? Did Jesus really say, I'm the only way, the truth, and life? So uh, Solus Christus is built not on the Reformers, not on even on the doctrine that's been passed down. Solus Christus is based squarely on what Jesus says about himself and what he says about the way of salvation. I mean, he, he came with no plan B. I mean, he came yeah. to deliver people from spiritual death and bondage into life, and he did it on his own. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, John, John 10, the good shepherd, I mean, that, that's, you can't walk away from John 10 and think there's any other way to heaven except to Christ. Yeah. It's, uh, there's no other way. 
So let's link this to monergism. That's something that, I mean, you're already doing, but, um, uh, these, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, well, <laughs> I didn't mean to, to apply the doctrine. <laughs> no, what I, I'm trying to, to link what you're already talking about to what the next thing I want to talk about. And that is, um, you know, all, all these doctrines, they don't, they don't just come, like you've said before, they don't just come up in a vacuum. They come up as we're digging through scriptures and, and logically if this is true, then that must be true as well. And, and, and monergism is a big thing from the reformation as well. And, and it's very closely tied to, to Solus Christus. Yes. Yes. So you're talking about, you know, who's contributing to salvation, essentially. We're talking about right. that. Um, I, I, sorry, I, yeah, let me just apologize. I, or explain, I guess, um, I prefer this term. I, people like to talk about, you know, I'm a Calvinist, I'm an Arminian, or he's a Pelagian, or whatever. I prefer to just use the terms monergism and synergism because then it gets to the heart of why I would call myself a Calvinist. You know, I don't subscribe to some of Calvin's doctrines. I'm not a, you know, you and I are, are Baptists. We're not um, Pato Baptists. We're Credo Baptists and whatnot. Right. And and right. some people think that's a big deal. You know, you can't call yourself a Calvinist unless you're a you know, baby baptizer, but um, I can just cut through it all with the term monergism and say, well, the reason why I would would call myself a Calvinist is because I agree with his view on salvation, that it's all Christ. It's all Jesus. It's none of me. I, the, the only thing that I had to do with my salvation was the sin that made it necessary. As right. it's often said. Right. So in Ephesians chapter one, this is really what sort of sealed the deal for me. Cause when I was wrestling through the question about whether or not God chooses to save, whether it's out of his plan and his provision, his action in Ephesians one, it's very clear. I mean, he says that God has chosen, he has predestined us as to adoption as sons through Christ Jesus to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. That's Ephesians one five. So it's very clear that God is doing something, but it says in verse 7 in the same chapter, in him we have redemption through his blood for the forgiveness of our trespasses. But to think about what does it mean to be adopted as a son? Mm-hmm. What does it mean to be adopted as a child of God? Um, as far as I can tell, um, kids who are being adopted into families, they're not the ones who petition the court. They're not the ones who pay the money. They're not the ones who actually travel to a family and force them to adopt them. Adoption happens very uh, passively in terms of the, the child being adopted. It's 100% the parent who is doing the adopting. Mm-hmm. Babies don't choose to be born. Uh, dead people don't choose to be resurrected again. Uh, in the case of Lazarus, I mean, he did not somehow come to just enough to ask Jesus to, to, to save him and revive him. Right. Um, he was dead and stinking in the ground. So all throughout Scripture— uh, whether you're talking about the epistles teaching doctrine, or whether you talk about the actual uh, narrative where we see these things happening, it is very clearly uh, on the will of God. God is the one who saves. He is the one who regenerates. It's his His will. It's his provision. It's his plan. So um, I don't, frankly, I don't, I understand the arguments of a sort of a synergistic um, view of it, that there are commands in Scripture to repent and believe, and so, you know, why would God tell us to do so if we couldn't do it, and so on and so forth? But there, there is a sort of a divine mystery that we're not absolved of the human responsibility to repent and believe, but when mm-hmm. we understand soteriologically what's actually happening, God is regenerating. 
when we look at the old, uh, the, the new covenant promise in, in Ezekiel uh, 36, where it talks about God says, I will remove their heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within them. I will cause them to walk in my ways. That is monogistic. I mean, mm-hmm. that's, or excuse me, monergistic. I pronounced that wrong. <laughs> I don't know how else to, I mean, I, you can't make those verses say something else, mm-hmm. you know? So it's just very clearly uh, the work of Christ alone. It is the plan of God alone um, to save. And really, we are we are debtors to grace, and we are debtors that can never repay the debt. Um, so it, all all that is supposed to do in us is uh, is produce thankfulness and produce uh, a love and uh, an adoration of God to produce a worship in us. Uh, no, no Calvinist has the right to be prideful. If they really understand their doctrine, yeah. there's actually absolutely no room for pride at all. If anything, we should be the most humble of believers because we understand that that salvation is all of grace. That we did nothing, and if we are uh, elect of God, it's simply because God is kind, not because we have warranted being elect. So I think this notion that that somehow we have a right to boast because we're you know whatever. Is, is wrong. And I think even our pride in having a certain theological viewpoint can actually uh, detract away from Solus Christus, because then now uh, in our pride, we say, well, you know, it's salvation plus I'm, you know, I'm a Calvinist. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's no merit in that. There's no merit in being a Calvinist by itself. There's no merit in having correct theology as, as if it warrants salvation. Uh, not at all. So it, mm-hmm. we, we need to be in a position of humility as we approach these doctrines. Yeah, not just humility, but uh, I think a common thing you hear from synergists is they'll talk about fairness and and that, well, if, you, if you're right as a monergist, that's not fair because then not everybody really has the opportunity to access salvation. And uh, But I don't think we want fair. I mean, we really don't. No. I mean, because if we were going to be fair, nobody would be saved. That's right. Fairness would be God punishing sin at the at the highest level to preserve His holiness and taking mm-hmm. His wrath out on us. That is fair, right? But in in grace and in kindness, He offered up His own Son, who is a spotless Lamb, to take the penalty for our sins. Mm-hmm. So He preserved that holiness. He preserved that righteousness by sacrificing His Son. But yeah, I agree with you to say that somehow that that God is not being fair. That Calvinism Calvinism makes God not fair. Um, I think that is that's a, a warped statement. I don't think that's a correct statement because of what Scripture says to us. Right. Yeah. Well, um, I know we've been short, and I, I don't necessarily want to cut us off right away, but I want to be mindful of our time. We both kind of have uh, other commitments to get to, but um, I want to kind of push us in the direction of of uh, wrapping up. Um, is there is there any other aspect? I'm just kind of thumbing through the chapter here to see if there's is there is there some other aspect of solus christus that's important that that we should talk about before we close oh i think just the application of it just you know that uh it it should create a worship it should create Mm. um, a sense of awe uh, of the work of christ and our church right now is working through the book of colossians and the, the overall theme is just the supremacy of christ and i'll tell you you cannot exalt christ high enough I mean, right. King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You can't you can't put him in a higher place. So, um, uh, so it's. I think that really should. That's where it should lead to. 
um, mm-hmm. where where believers should be thankful to the Lord for their salvation. But in doing so, it doesn't stop just at being thankful for saving me. But Lord, thank you for for your transcendent holiness. Thank you for your person, your character, your work. And so it should drive us to exalting Christ. If our theology doesn't drive us into the worship of Christ, then we need to re-examine. So I think if anything, you know, like Paul says, I declare to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's not that it's not that Paul was saying I don't know anything else. He was saying the most important thing that's on my mind is the person of Christ. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's where our theology needs to bring us to um is is an adoration of Jesus. So I think that's that's where Solus Christus has to has to bring us. Um and I think if that's where it's going, I think we're going the right direction. Yeah, well said. And I I lately I've had and I have it on my mind a lot and and meditating upon what is, you know, kind of the the purpose for this age, you know, and and <laughs> We live in a, I mean, no matter how good we have it in this life, we really live in a dystopia. I mean, we really do. And, um, and, and I, it, the more I kind of think about the world that as it is now where we are and, and the world that will be once Christ redeems it all, um, and we get to glory, I, you know, it's, it, it does, you know, I, I think a lot about politics. I think about, um, like world events, you know, we've got, we're kind of in the middle of this um, deal, you know, trying to work out peace with North Korea and trying to take care of Iran and, you know, all this stuff's going on all over the world. And, and uh, I guess in the back of my mind, it's just constantly like we, I mean, we need Christ more than we ever could possibly dream. And, and I imagine I'm going to spend, much of eternity just looking in glory and thinking, you know, wow, you know, no matter how good we as people could kind of get things to seem, they're a dunghill compared to what the Lord has in store for us. And um, the word dystopia keeps coming up that no matter how, I mean, mm-hmm. as Americans, we always like we take pride in in our country and, and what not only what our country is, but what it's done for the world as a whole and um, bringing freedom and prosperity and whatnot. But no matter how good it gets, we're still really a dystopia compared to what, what the world will be like when we've got our King ruling Mm -hmm. over us uh, in eternity. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's a good word, brother. It, yeah, it kind of it kind of drives me uh, crazy at times, you know. I, I I just I don't know. That's been on my mind a lot lately, and uh, looking forward to glory. But that's uh, yeah. you know, no matter how much uh, things get me down here, it it gets me focused on you know. Wow, I I really look forward to to the consummation of the age and and going into glory and 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 living the rest of eternity under His reign. Mm, that's right. Amen. Amen. Oh. Well, Nate, I, uh, I, I so much appreciate having you back again and, uh, it's a great topic. I, uh, like I said, I, I started the solo series, uh, man, what was it back in 2010, I think. Mm. And, uh, we did a few of them and, and, uh, just kind of 
got put on the back burner and never did quite forget about it. Always wanted to get back to it. And I appreciate you coming back with me. And so now we just got one left and uh, hopefully we can get um, Soli Dale Gloria uh, done as a podcast episode sometime in the near future too and wrap up the series. Excellent. But, but, Excellent. Uh, thanks so much. Having you on, Andy. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I always enjoy uh, my interactions with you and, uh, and having you on and, uh, and uh, your perspective and your, uh, what what you share. Thank you. I appreciate oh. that. Echo Zoe Radio is an outreach of Echo Zoe Ministries. If you are blessed by the show, please consider offering your support. There are many things you can do to help, including prayer, sharing your show with others, and your financial support. Echo Zoe Ministries is a registered nonprofit organization with 501c3 tax-exempt status, and your donations are tax-deductible. For more information about how you can support EchoZoe Ministries, please visit EchoZoe.com slash support. That wraps up episode 122. Thanks for listening to EchoZoe Radio. Uh, for show notes, visit EchoZoe.com slash 122. Be sure to check out the website also for links to connect with EchoZoe on social media. We're on Twitter and Facebook and love to connect with you. So follow and like EchoZoe Ministries. If you haven't seen it yet, I did do another episode of Echozoi Answers, which is the video show that we've done four episodes so far, a Q&A show, and I put one up since the last podcast episode. I addressed the phrase, come as you are. You can find that at the website as well as the other usual places, namely YouTube and Facebook. That show is currently on hiatus as I work on building out a new office and podcast studio, but you're welcome to submit a question for future episodes. Just be warned that it might be a few months before I'm able to get to it. And one last thing before we close, at the time of the recording, we're very close to meeting our fundraising goal for 2018 operating expenditures. If you're able to, please consider supporting Aquazoi financially and help us to meet that goal. Lord willing, we'll all be back next month for the July episode of Aquazoi Radio. 